would choose the darkest and the stormiest night. It's going to be a stormy night tonight, so spread the word around. We're going to have a meeting in this woods because they had to meet together. They had to get together and fellowship and study the word of God or have the word of God preached and so on. So it's sort of relative whether we're brave or not this morning. (laughs) But I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming out. And um, it's a blessing to have a little bit of a varied service this morning as a reading of Scripture. I suppose some churches, they do uh, more reading of Scripture than we do. Uh, it was a blessing this morning. So, And thank you for that testimony of what God has done, Robert or Bob, and trust what he'll continue to do. If you could, why don't we just stand for a word of prayer before we begin. Lord, we are grateful to you this morning as we consider that you are the the Lord that is in charge and is over the storms, the storms of nature and the storms of life. You are a sovereign God, Lord, and though things surprise us and amaze us and dismay us, Lord, they do not surprise or dismay you. Lord, you are sovereign, and we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to recognize that and rest in that and find that blessed rest and assurance that you have promised to your people, to your children. I pray this morning, Lord, you would guide us as we study your word, and in the exposition of it, I pray your blessing upon us in both the giving and the receiving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you see it, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6 again this morning. We have been in a study, a character study of Satan. We had looked a while ago about what the Bible says about his origin, about his fall, and his ongoing rebellion in the world. When it comes to Satan's origin and his fall, we can't be too dogmatic. Because we know he was created by God and we know he rebelled. But we, we, we piece certain pieces together and we make a composite picture of what happened. And when you do that, when you make a composite picture of what happened, you have to be careful because you're not quite sure if the picture is accurate. So when it comes to his origin, when it comes to his fall, we have a composite picture. And we can make some reasonable expectations and so on. But be a little careful. We don't want to divide or argue over those details. But how the devil is working in the world today, we have a much clearer picture. There are many clear descriptions and warnings about him, as well as how he will eventually be completely defeated. And the root verse that we have been spinning off of in 2 Corinthians, you'll have to turn there was this one verse, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So Paul was not ignorant of Satan's devices, and neither should we be. And the last three messages we've been in Ephesians chapter 6, where we've been talking about the armor that is actually keeps us standing when the devil is after us. And so we'll read there, This morning, starting at chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh. Oh, no, sorry. I should start reading at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take upon you unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, 
and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. <clears throat> That's the armor. We studied about how we already girded ourselves with truth. That's reality. And we put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's moral truth, moral reality. And this morning, we'll look at having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Feet shod. Now, this is an illustration of armor. As as Spurgeon had a title in one of his messages, he had said, Shoes for Pilgrims and Warriors. Shoes for Pilgrims and Warriors. Now, shoes are important, are they not? I can, in my mind, I can, I can identify every shoe I own. I have three in my closet. I have my formal shoes, my black Sunday shoes, my... These are my formal shoes, what we use for church, we use for weddings, um, funerals, and other formal events. Then I have some dark brown shoes that look a lot like this. They're what we would call a knockabout shoes. I don't know if that's a common term or not. But it's for more casual events. And then another shoe I have in my closet is my sneakers. And they are for more active situations. Then I can go into my garage, and I have two pairs of shoes for work, one with steel toe, the other not. And then we have a pair of muck boots. You can imagine what they're for. And then I have a pair of Crocs just to slip on and go outside. So those are my shoes. But each shoe is very specific purpose. And you have you can go over your shoes and you can you have shoes and I I hope I hope your array of footwear is a sanctified array. I hope it is. I don't know what you have in your closet in your garage. But one that identifies you solidly as a pilgrim people and avoids the tentacles of fashion and trends. But that's not the point this morning. The point is yeah, those shoes have a purpose too. <laughs> Point is, shoes are important, and the right shoe is important. If I would have come in with Crocs this morning or muck boots, which I suggested maybe I should, it's snowing, we come with my my farm boots, but it wouldn't fit. It, it, it you might not be able to hear me. You'd be looking at my footwear. But there's a lot of thought and there's a lot of experimentation that goes into making proper footwear in its construction in making it and then in its selection, who chooses it and why. So shoes are not something we can be careless about or overlook. So if we have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, what do those shoes look like? What do they do? How do they protect you from harm, and how do they equip you for activity? So that verse that we have here, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, it's... This passage is interpreted two ways generally. And one way states that we should be ready, we should be prepared to share the gospel of peace. We should be ready for evangelism. It's an exhortation. The one interpretation it is is an exhortation for Christians to be ready to evangelize. And if you look at various different um, translations, 
Some of the translations take this, and you can actually read it. It's prepared to preach the gospel of priests. It, it says it in that almost those very words, depending which do you look. So some commentators and some translations interpret it that way. And there's a reason for it, because if you go in Isaiah, well, we'll just skip that, but in Isaiah where it's rooted, but the, the, the quote in Romans 10 is a little clearer, but it's quoting Isaiah 52, and I'll just quote it here. Uh, Romans 10:15. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, just referring to Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, oh, that bringeth glad tidings of good things. So comparing with Scripture, with Scripture, you could very easily get that idea because both places you have the gospel of peace and you have feet, the shoes, the feet, rather. However, this also can be an example of a bad comparison. <laughs> I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. But just because similar words are used here and here does not actually mean that it's, if the context is different. It doesn't mean the same thing. Uh, an example of that would be in Second Peter, you have one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so some people take that and say, well, time means nothing to the Lord, so therefore Genesis 1, those creation days, could have been a thousand years or any amount of time because time doesn't matter. And they take this and they connect it with this, but it's two different contexts or two different purposes, and they do not connect, and you shouldn't do that. And... And so you have to be careful how you interpret that. Context is important. What we're speaking here is about putting on protective armor to keep us from being taken down by the enemy. We're not talking about advancing the kingdom through evangelization. Not, not here, we aren't. And so the other common interpretation of this verse is that speaking about the gospel piece of personal assurance of salvation. And this fits the context well. If you, if I, have a robust assurance of our salvation, of our sins forgiven, of our walk with God, of our clear heaven, we are at a very good place to resist the attacks and the devices of the enemy. In other words, our assurance of peace in our standing with God is an important part of the armor that God supplies for his people. And to this Spurgeon agrees, this preacher who believed much in evangelism said, and about this verse, thus you see that the peace which comes of justification and the fuller peace which arises from enjoying the love of God are a grand preparation for our life's journey, a shoe for the foot unrivaled in excellence. So these shoes are not about evangelism or advancing the kingdom. It's about standing our ground against the enemy. So, the question we have, are the shoes you have on your feet this morning able to properly protect you and equip you to stand against the deception of the devil? Have you so experienced this gospel of peace that you're prepared and ready for battle? That you're not going to go down when the road or the path gets rocky. You have shoes that are properly equipped that when the way gets muddy, rocky, slippery, thorny. Am I describing life? <laughs> when it becomes that way, that you can stay standing in that whatever situation where there are sharp stones and sticks, where the sands are hot, where the snow is deep, whatever happens, you are prepared because the gospel, the peace of the gospel has strengthened you. Many churches, now I've not done a survey, so I don't know, but many churches have lots of tired, disillusioned people struggling to live 
the Christian life. People whose weariness confirm that the gospel of peace has been somehow neglected or lost. The assurance and the joy and the peace and the confidence is weak or missing. We cannot prosper without this piece of armor. Now, when it comes to assurance of salvation, there's a lot of things we could look at. First, we're going to look at some observations of shoes available for us to put on. There are at least three possibilities for shoes. It's possible, first, it's possible for a, to be a true Christian and not have a very good assurance of salvation. It's possible. How do you think those shoes are constructed and how do you think they function? Then number two, it's possible to be a true Christian and have true assurance of salvation. And these are, in surgeon's words, a shoe for the foot unrivaled in excellence. And number three, it's possible to believe you are a Christian and believe you are saved but be deceived. That's possible, but we're not going to address that one this morning. So, if I ask for a raise of hands, how many of you believe in the doctrine of assurance of salvation? You probably all raise your hands. We believe in the doctrine. Now, if I ask for a raise of hands, how many of you experience the full assurance of salvation all the time? How many of you put your hands up? Not mine. Assurance, like faith, it has degrees. It's not an all or nothing situation. It's like the disciples in the boat. Carest thou not that we perish? And I think, where was their faith? Jesus was there, right? And the other time he said, Lord, save us! And you see, you, 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 you see, they're actually going to the right source, but they are not filled with faith. And I guess when it comes to our assurance, if you lack assurance at any given time, or you're struggling with it or whatever it is, do what the disciples did. They went to the right source. Lord, save us. That's the right thing to do. Now, there might be some other thing to do. We'll talk about that, too. But uh, it has to be in that context. But it's an interesting twist of experience here. The fact that I recognize that I don't have to have full assurance at every moment of time actually gives me some assurance. <laughs> it's, it's one of those interesting twists. I don't have to feel that full assurance all the time. I can rest in faith at times because assurance, at least to some degree, has, has emotion with it. So when I'm struggling or I'm down in some way, that's okay. Now, there are two strands of biblical assurance. I thought of how does this apply to a shoe. I don't know if it does or not. I think of the sole and then the top, the leather top or whatever form top you have. You want to separate it, but I don't know. But there's two strands for biblical assurance that we need to have both of these strands to have assurance. And the first is the objective work God has done for us. Has done it for us in Christ on the cross. It's the full belief and assurance and persuasion that Christ died for me and that my sins were nailed on the cross with Christ. This assurance has for its object what God did for me and what I can never do for myself. And this has, again, goes, if you want to look in the, in the context, in the whole context of the two kingdoms and how we are in the kingdom of the devil, that's where we're at, and God actually provides the way that we can be translated into Christ's kingdom. The objective work God has done for us. Mark Twain 
who was not a Christian, had something quite right concerning salvation. He said, and I think I said it here before, heaven is by favor. If heaven were by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. (laughs) Now, there might be a better way to say it, (laughs) but it does make the point. Have you ever heard the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know? So, the foundation, if you want to say that the soul, the shoe soul of our assurance is not first what we do, it is what God has done completely without us. Heaven goes by favor. You see, while we were yet sinners, and, and I know this is all familiar, and yet, when we talk about assurance, we need to have this. We, we, we cannot. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. So here you have it. Christ died. God loved and God gave. As soon as man fell, God began the process of restoration. And he made those coats of skin for Adam and Eve to provide a covering for them beyond what they could muster. Salvation has been accomplished for every person on the globe. For me, for you, for your family, for my family, for our neighbors, for the whole globe. Male and female, rich and poor, smart and dumb, um, pretty and plain. We are all in the same boat. And by the way, I thought of that. I thought rich and poor, smart and dumb, pretty and plain, and I had male and female, but there's no there's no there's no connection, okay <laughs> between that that uh that rhythm. This is a reality. It's an objective reality, it's a fact. This truth is as true, it's truer actually than the law of gravity. That God loves you is truer than the law of gravity. That God provided everything for our salvation is more certain than the sun that shines. God did it. He provided it. And did you, do you believe that? Did you experience that? Someone can hold out a glass of water to you and say, when does it become yours? And the answer is, when I take it. When I take it, it becomes mine. Have you drunk of the glass of salvation? It's very good. Thank you, Eldon. I was going to read and trying to figure out if I should have uh, familiar words in Titus 3. I think I'll read it here. For we ourselves were also sometimes foolish and disobedient and deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. That's when Christ came, not by works of righteousness which we had done, but according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there comes that hope, that assurance. God provides salvation for us. Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit washes and renews us. The entire Trinity is together with this. This is the foundation of our salvation. 
Because of his grace, he declares us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. But we struggle, don't we, at times? I just thought of that one song that I that I really enjoy, just as I am without one plea, and what it has that element. And I studied who well, who was the author of this, and where did this come from? And so I want to read a little bit about that. Charlotte Elliot. Um, she had a reverend brother, a minister brother who was organized a, it called it a bazaar, but it's but for the best I can understand it, some kind of a fundraiser that he uh, planned. And she was to have part of this, apparently. And the night before this planned event, which was probably a pretty big event, she couldn't sleep. She was struggling. And I'll, I'll read some of what, what it says about her. The night before the fundraiser, she was kept wakeful by distressing thoughts of her apparent uselessness. And these thoughts pass by a transition easy to imagine into a spiritual conflict. So those negative, degrading thoughts about herself took her into a spiritual conflict. Until she questioned the reality of her whole spiritual life and wondered whether it was any anything better at all, after all, than just an illusion of the emotions. An illusion ready to be sorrowfully dispelled. The next day, the busy day of the bazaar, she lay upon her sofa in that most pleasant dressing room set apart for her in the Westfield Lodge. That's apparently at some place where they were at. The troubles of the night came back upon her with such force that she felt she must meet and be met and conquered in the grace of God. She gathered up her soul in her soul the great certainties, not of her emotions, but of her salvation, of her Lord, her, his power, his promise. And taking pen and paper from the table, she deliberately sat down in writing for her own comfort the principles of her faith. Hers was a heart which always tended to express its steps in verse. So in verse, she restated to herself the gospel of pardon, peace, and heaven. Probably without difficulty or long pause, she wrote the hymn, getting comfort by, thus definitely recollecting the eternity of the rock underneath her feet. There then always... Not only for some past moment, but even now she was accepted in the beloved just as I am. And those uh, words, just as I am, without one plea, but thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee, whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. You know, we can have great assurance as we meditate and believe the love, the faithfulness, and the promises of God. We're not adrift. We're not standing on some shaky, rickety foundation. There is a foundation. They call it about that rock. And we talk about that anchor. Does your anchor hold? There's an anchor in a rock that is unmovable. <clears throat> We're not adrift. The blood has been shed for me, that blood that saved me from guilt and from its power. And um, relating to the cup again, I'll just read Psalms 116. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. See, things happen to us. Life happens. We face situations we never dreamt we would face. We are responsible for tasks that we have no idea 
how we're going to accomplish it. We may be challenged or disciplined in ways that we never saw coming, and we can lose sight of our peace, our assurance, our good news of salvation. And this is not a joke. This is not a laughing matter. These are life and death issues. People do lose out, and they either become ineffective or they leave the Christian life altogether. You don't need to. Either way, either way, they come ineffective or lead a Christian life. The devil wins. Someone has not had uh, won many things, maybe not had proper shoes on their feet. Rest on the work that God has done for you. The work that we participated in when we first believed in the gospel. When we first believed in God. Never lose that. And if you are struggling, do reach out. Do what the disciples did. Cry out to the Lord and maybe to someone else. Then there is the subjective experience of the working of the Spirit of God in the heart. This strand of assurance has for us in its object the reality of the inward working of the Spirit of God. In other words, it's one thing to know what Christ has done, to know he loves us, but when he is also working in us and we are experiencing God, that is an assurance as well. It, it, and it needs to be that. If you just have a mental assent and maybe some kind of emotional experience back there and it's not an ongoing thing, you should lack, you should lack some assurance. So as we look at that, we'll look at this strand of assurance. This has for its object the work of God in us. So the question does need to be asked, how does one know if he has truly been saved? Millions of people in America say they are saved, that they believe. The sons of Eli were in the ministry, but they didn't know God. Now, this second strand of insurance is connected to the first. You see, flowers don't bring spring. Is that right? The flowers come up and then spring comes. No. <laughs> spring brings the flowers. You cannot have... Flowers do not bring spring, but you cannot have spring without flowers. And that is how the Christian life works. Good works do not bring you salvation or assurance. It should not. But you cannot have salvation without good works. The one follows the other. The one the other one does not bring salvation. What would you think? If I would tell you that on the way to church this morning, the roads were the way they were, but I got up to speed and I was coming 55 miles an hour up 501 and there was a Mack truck coming the other way and he lost control and he drove right over me, flattened the van two feet high and kept on going. And I'm here, my hair's combed, I have my shoes on my feet and you would think, you could not have had such an encounter with a Mack truck and remain unchanged, right? You could not. Something would change in you if that would happen. And I have to ask you the question, can you have an encounter with the Spirit of God and not be changed? Which is more powerful? Salvation is a supernatural work of God in which the very nature and heart of a person is changed and it must manifest itself in a new way of life. Now, the Bible describes this experience in many ways, as uh, far as the, not the, the initial, but not the initial impact, but the, the working out of it, uh, walking in the spirit, being raised in newness of life, adding to your faith out of Peter, yielding to God, 
presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. All those, all those things are descriptions of it. This second strand of assurance occurs when there is a genuine and regular walk with God in surrender and obedience. The conscience is clear. It's clean. There are no skeletons in the closet. There are no areas of life where sin rules or reigns or has the victory. There are no people that as much as lies in you, you are not at peace with. The work of God in us, the yielding to him is not perfect. The work that Christ did on the cross, that was a perfect work. This work is not a perfect work. It's partial, it's flawed, but it's real, and it's dynamic. It's ongoing. It results in repentance. It results in confessions. So a true Christian does not live in sinless perfection. The proof of a true Christian is not the fact that he does not sin. A true Christian is revealed by his attitude toward sin. And then we have a few verses in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. You may turn there, but you don't have to. Very familiar verses. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now remember, we're talking about having proper shoes on our feet. We're talking about being properly shod. And I'm describing the life that brings very good or strong assurance with it. That's what I'm describing here. A true Christian will be sensitive to the sin in their life, and it will lead them to brokenness and genuine repentance or confession. A true Christian keeps the list short. The words that you say, the attitudes that you have, the look, that look, that pride, that boastfulness, that splurging, these things can be dealt with as soon as the Holy Spirit, sometimes in the form of another person, brings it to our attention. And our assurance and our peace can remain strong, even with flaws and failures and sins. Jesus had conflict with the Pharisees. And I wonder why, and it has a few verses. He just tells them in Luke 12, that beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hidden that shall not be known. Spurgeon says this of the conscience. Now we're talking about the conscience. You know, sometimes we lack assurance because we have a nagging feeling about something in our life that we know isn't quite what it ought to be. We, we're not sure. We're, not, we're uncertain. And this is this thing, or it's these things, or it's this area of my life. It's, it's your conscience. It's something is... Spurgeon says this of the conscience... He said, he was, he was a fool who killed the watchdog when it warned him of thieves. If conscience upbraids you, feel its upbraiding and heed its rebuke. It is your best friend. Now I'm talking about the conscience, not the dog, man's best friend. Your conscience is man's best friend more than the dog. It is a blessed thing to have a conscience who will shiver when the very ghost of sin goes by. A conscience that is not like are great steamships that do not yield to every wave, but like a cork in the water, it goes up and down with every ripple, sensitive in a moment to the very approach of sin. May God, the Holy Spirit, so make us. So a true Christian is not one who does not sin, but he or she is sensitive to sin. 
A question for you. When was the last time you were broken and repentant over a sin in your life? Or are you living in sinless perfection? When was the last time you were deceitful or dishonest or you wallowed in self-pity? When was the last time God showed you a sin committed against someone else and you confessed that sin to that person? How do we respond when someone comes to us with a need or a sin in our life? How do we react? Does our heart ponder and do we carefully consider what they say? Or do we reject, fight back, dig in our heels? How we respond to a messenger of the Lord say something about how we respond to the Lord. But remember, and always remember, God always provides a way to peace. There is a pathway back to assurance. And so, whether you are sensitive to sin, you're walking and you have assurance, or whether you have wandered a little bit out of the way or maybe far out of the way, there is a way to peace and assurance again. There is a place where we can be at rest. And so we can ask the questions, and these are only practical things. Uh, these are not they're just disciplines of the Christian life. How, how are you doing now with your prayer reading, Bible reading, <laughs> prayer, with the structure, your discipline, taking care of yourself physically, keeping your priorities straight? We are a whole people. There is no areas of us that are to be outside of the spirit of God, of the will of God. Every, every area of our life is to be brought in to subjection, surrendered to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, and allow the Spirit to, to do with it what he wants to do. Every area. If we think there are small areas that we do not need Christ's approval, we are at risk because small areas add up to major defeat. I read a story many, many years ago of a man a neighbor, a neighbor man got his, uh, no, a man got his neighbor to build him a fence. He needed a fence around his pasture. And back then there's these wooden posts with wooden rails. That was the fence. <laughs> and so this neighbor comes over and builds a fence. And at lunchtime he went in for lunch with the man that got him hired. And uh, he knew this man to be a, a a church member in town. And over the mealtime, this man spilled his water. Um, talking about the owner, not the fence builder, but the owner, spilled his water. And he cursed the glass. And this neighbor that was building the fence looked at that, but his wife didn't seem to show any surprise, so he thought it was normal. Uh, at some point, and I don't know how it all went, at some point he talked about, to the man, about what he did. He said, ah, that's just a little thing. But by the way, I, there's other areas of my life. You know, I tithe, I, you know, dude, and he talked about all the really ah, good of a Christian he is. And this, this is not, no, don't worry about it. Because over here he's really good. So he kept on building the fence. And a day or two later, he was in for lunch again, and the, the neighbor asked him, how's the fence going? How's it going? Oh, it's going really well. We got this much done. And uh, my fence, um, well, I, I have a gap here, but that, you know, I have a gap here. But over here, I, I made it extra strong and put the posts close together and put really strong rails in. And so over there, it's really strong, and but you have these gaps here. But, yeah, it's going well, going well. And a man, you know, responds, yeah, you can't have gaps in the fence. You can't. The cows will find it and go out. Yeah, yeah. So that's how it is when you allow areas in your life, not under the spirit, not under 
you have not surrendered this area of your life to the Holy Spirit. There's a gap. There's a hole. There's a place for the enemy. Now, we might say that the feet shot is not nearly as important as the head or the heart or the belt of truth to fit everything together or the sword of the spirit. But if we don't have proper equipment for our feet, we are not prepared for battle. We are prepared for failure. Because it may be the smaller, more unnoticed places in our life that will trip us up, no pun intended. Where in your life do you have small, unchecked, or untamed areas? What are the small things that ultimately add up to great defeat? See, we are, our hearts are a sanctuary of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. That makes us a temple. If you think of a temple, you think of a building, and you think the temple, that sanctuary, that holy place is inside that building. Now I talk about our thoughts. This is maybe one of the small areas. Our thoughts are a part of us. God considers our thoughts a part of us. And our thoughts, if they're going to be a part of us and we're going to be in this sanctuary and we're going to have worship with God, our thoughts should be pure and humble and loving. In fact, our thoughts ought to be everything that our life is supposed to be. Fantasies that go into forbidden areas are to be shunned. Our thoughts are the decorations inside our sanctuary where we come, where we live, and where we worship God. If our thoughts are cleansed by the blood, we are living in a clean room. Even if we just came out of a mechanic shop or out of the barn, wherever it was, you had dirty clothing on, we are clean. Our thoughts, God considers the thoughts a part of ourselves. They should be thoughts of peace. They should be thoughts of pity and mercy and kindness, and charity, thoughts of God. These are pure things. And our thoughts should not be a wilderness in which any kind of thought is permitted to grow. You, you, you know how it is. You've seen a field or you've seen a garden or you see whatever, and it's, you just left go, and it just grows Whatever grows. That's how thoughts can be. Rather, our thoughts ought to be carefully selected plants. Planted in rows, in order. The plants that are planted are the plants that we, can, that we want the fruit of. You, when we do a garden, we plant what we want fruit of. Your thoughts, don't think any thought that you don't want the fruit of that thought. And plant thoughts that you want the fruit of. Do not entertain any thought that you have undesirable fruit. And what thoughts do you think of yourself? Are they... Demeaning or degrading thoughts? You know, demeaning or degrading thoughts about yourself, and we just talked about this author, uh, just as I am author, her uselessness, her feeling of uselessness. Uh, low thoughts of yourself are ex- from the exact same root as boastful thoughts about yourself. Or proud thoughts about myself. And look how great I am. Look what I did. Oh, my, people think so much of me. Versus, oh, I'm just, you know, and you're down. They're the same root. It's pride. Don't, don't let those thoughts, either one, I mean, get rid of them. Those are weeds. Psychotherapy is needs-based. The need for self-esteem, love, and acceptance, and significance tend to dominate 
If these needs are met, it is believed people will be happy, kind, and moral. If these needs are unmet, people will be miserable and hateful and immoral. But biblical counseling teaches that true satisfaction and happiness can only be found in a relationship with God and a pursuit of godliness. No amount of psychotherapy can make a selfish person unselfish, for example, but the obedient servant of God will be happy or be satisfied in his joyful, unselfish giving. So this is the second strand of insurance, walking with God. And can two walk together unless they be agreed? God does not compromise his holiness to walk with me. I need to yield my life to walk with him. And uh, maybe you want to turn here if you want to Philippians 4. Again, familiar verses. Could have read this chapter 2 this morning. 6 and 9. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God. Now that peace of God, is this assurance, this peace, this resting, this peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep, or shall guard and protect. Remember what I'm talking about, our, our shoes. What do our shoes do? They're armor. This peace of God will keep. And that word keep means guard. It will protect you. It's right in context here. It protect your hearts and minds through Jesus, to Christ Jesus. And then following what are about our thoughts. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. These things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. God provides shoes for our feet, the peace, the assurance that comes from the gospel, both objective and subjective, prepares us for the battles we are facing today and the ones that are still ahead. Because be assured, we are in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. We hear of failures. We hear of tragedies. We have personal doubts. We have relational difficulties. We have pressure to compromise. Plan on it. That's the way it is. But be even more assured than that, that you, that I, we can be equipped for battle. We are pilgrims. We are warriors, and God has provided shoes for pilgrims and warriors. Like the words of Spurgeon, a shoe for the foot, unrivaled in excellence. This is armor of God. He provides it. Put it on and never take it off. May God bless you.